Hey y'all, welcome to the Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast brought to you by Second Day. My name is Maria Mathine, and every other week I'm sitting down with people who are building careers working on our community's biggest challenges. And we're using this space to not only prove that it is possible to build a career that allows you to do good for the world and do well for yourself, but to also demystify how to make that happen for social impact job seekers everywhere. I am really excited about this week's episode. It was recorded the day before election day and honestly could not have been timed better given who I'm talking to. This week, I'm sitting down with Diana Tutau Rhodes, who is the Vice President of Policy, Partnerships and Organizing at Advocates for Youth, which is a national reproductive and sexual health and rights organization that centers on the needs and voices of young people while building young people's power to make change in their own campuses and communities. She oversees the organization's policy advocacy strategies and youth organizing campaigns on a wide range of reproductive and sexual health rights justice issues that affect young people. She's a member of Advocates Management Team while leading strategic partnerships and movement building efforts. Diana has been working in social justice movements for over 15 years with both grassroots and grasstop stakeholders, primarily around issues that affect women, young people, communities of color, and the LGBTQ community. She holds an MA from George Washington University in public policy with a concentration in gender studies, as well as a BA from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in sociology and gender studies. Diana, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to chat about you and the work that you've been doing in the community. It's really exciting. So I guess let's start at the beginning. Your mom moved to the States from Vietnam and you are the first in your family to not just get your undergrad, but also your master's. So how do you think your lived experience has really shown up in your activism and policy work that you do now? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. As you mentioned, my family is from Vietnam. My family immigrated to the United States. I was born in the U.S. My generation, my cousins are the first generation in our family born in the U.S. And, you know, being a daughter of immigrants. And while my mom had always had education as a priority for her, she wasn't able to go to school. And so it was a very big, you know, important part of my growing up that I needed at least to go to college, right? And to be able to carve out a career path on my own. And I will say, you Know, not only being the the daughter of immigrants, but also working class family and a family that really had to learn to adapt to the United States coming from a war-torn country and learning to, at that time, assimilate. That was very much the 70s, 80s was a time where immigrant families needed to kind of navigate the United States and the various kind of programs and policies that were influencing their lives. There was a lot of adaptation, assimilation, and, and needing to really be resilient in order to be successful. But, you know, seeing all of that, that my family, my mom, the folks close to me kind of needed to endure, it really helped me see what was necessary and what was needed for folks that looked like me or folks who had similar experiences to my family. And also, you know, the the resilience that working class and especially communities of color have so intrinsically in order to really survive and make their way in this country. And so definitely impact a lot of my activism and especially my policy work really thinking about who we're centering when we're trying to shift public policy or even the cultural narratives. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the whole theory of change, particularly behind Second Day, right, is we don't have to run some big study to figure out what is it that under-resourced communities need to thrive. 
five, if you've actually lived that journey, you know, okay, here are the kind of social services that were helpful or the ones that were not as available or ones that were harder to navigate. When you have actually been a part of that journey, then I can imagine shows up in a very real way in your policy work when you're thinking about how to support the next generation. And I also liked what you said about the cultural narrative around our communities for people who are first generation Americans. We were, yeah, told to assimilate. And now I think there's a bit more nuance that comes into that conversation now, which is great. We love that. So that's really cool to hear. And one of my favorite stories that you shared with me is, you know, being a bright-eyed young student who is taking a sociology class and heard language for the first time around things like structural inequality and uh, how that really inspired you to think about a career where you could make the world a better place or at least build a life that allowed you to really do that. So I'm always curious, what would you tell that version of yourself sitting in that classroom now that you're so far into this social justice career that you've built? Yeah, thanks for that. And my very Pollyanna beginnings of of this kind of career of really honestly, truly wanting to make something better, right? I, I guess if I what I would tell that version of myself is that being idealistic is not a detriment to building your career and the things you want to do in life. And I think so often, especially, especially for young folks who are idealistic, who see and have this vision of a better world that could be possible, all too often adult and other folks kind of crush the idealism and and using a narrative of being realistic. And while I can understand the sentiment for some people wanting to ensure that the young people in their lives have a career track and are able to support themselves, idealism is not, and dreaming of a better world is not unreachable. And that is not, you know, a message that can bring about like long lasting sustainable change, which I do believe is possible. And so, you know, I definitely being a sociology and gender studies major in Las Vegas, Nevada, you know, was told often that my um, my education or my activism was nice for what it was, but it wasn't necessarily going to pay the bills. And I often say that, you know, I did not know, I did not know that my job was a job until I had it. And so it's really amazing organizations like Second Day and the work that y'all are doing is really being able to show the various different paths that folks can take. And, you know, that passion and vision on creating the world a better place in however way you want to is realistic and sustainable and achievable. Wow, that's very powerful. And I can already see that soundbite on social media. I think that's really powerful because there's sort of two threads that showed up for me as you were talking. The first is the fact that we are recording the day before election day. And on the other side of this recording, people will know how things turn out and we'll go from there, I guess. But I feel like so much of the narrative has been like trying to convince people of why they should vote. And even if a candidate isn't perfect, something that I read, which was really helpful, is that you vote to move the needle to get closer to a world that you want to create. There's no one candidate that's going to make that happen. And sometimes I feel like we've become so jaded that we're like, there's no point in even voting. Nothing's going to change. And it's a really, really frustrating cycle that I feel like a lot of people are caught in. So I'm wondering, like, given the work that you do, if you have any thoughts to people who are like, what's even the point of anything? Nothing's ever going to change. Do you come across that feeling a lot in your own work? A hundred percent and every day. <laughs> um, I definitely understand the sentiment and especially working with young activists 
yeah, these last five plus years, I mean, has been very challenging. And democracy, democracy itself is is hanging on by a wire, and the country is feeling that. And so I think it's completely fair to feel jaded about the state of government and feeling a sense of hopelessness, which is, I think, a very shared feeling. I am one in which, while I do advocacy work at the political and policy levels and various other levels, I'm also very transparent about what is possible and what is it, right? And I think that is the best thing you can do working with young activists or, or anyone generally that I know as we sit on the eve of election day, that whatever happens tomorrow isn't going to radically change, regardless, however way it goes, right? You know, if it goes the way some of us want, that elected officials and, and political change isn't the end all be all, right? But it is an important tool in the toolbox to create change. Voting is one tool in the toolbox of the ways you make change. And I often see policy change as a form of harm reduction. You know, we know that cultural shifts and changing hearts and minds and the practices of people and institutions all and the media and how we kind of even speak to identities and and what's happening in the world is incredibly important and needed for even policy change to be real right you can pass a bill but if the people don't aren't there for it then it's not going to move the needle and vice versa we can culturally be in a place, but if our laws and policies don't reflect that, so it's just part and parcel. We're trying to reduce harm as much as possible and is one step into a direction, but not the be all end all. And recognizing voting is one tool in the toolbox to make change. That is what I'm going to be reminding myself of as I inevitably am curled up on the couch tomorrow, just filled with existential dread. The other thing that your original comments brought up, which you've sort of already touched on, but I wanted to really name it is particularly you and I both work with young activists, people who are feeling very driven to make the world a better place. And one of the things that I struggle with, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, is the balance between encouraging people to dream big and to believe that it's possible to make things better. And also setting to your point, like expectations, realistic expectations of what you're getting yourself into and what's possible, right? So a lot of the work we do at Second Day is trying to name, okay, here are the challenges of working in this space. Here are the things to be aware of. Here are the places that you'll fail. Maybe here are the places that people have done harm in the past. And like, how do you move movement forward from that history? So there's just like so many layers. And I'm always struggling with the balance of setting those expectations and like scaring people away, to be honest, right? Because one of the things that I think I see a lot is people burning out because they come in a little too idealistic that they're going to change the world tomorrow. And then they're like, oh, this is very difficult. This is a very challenging system to navigate. And you don't want that either. So I'm curious how you strike that balance of helping people succeed and setting realistic expectations and also challenging them to, to dream big and want more. And that's a big question. So you might not have the answer, but curious if you have thoughts. I have some thoughts. We'll start there. I definitely, everything you said, I definitely share those sentiments. And it, it really is a balance, right? Because you want to be transparent and upfront and create realistic expectations for young people and either entering a job market or building a campaign to make change. But you also, you want to be as transparent as possible and also encourage them to continue to do the work, right? And so I definitely think it's a balance, but I think transparency is really helpful. And also just, I think idealism in and of itself 
itself is not a bad thing, but recognizing either the organization that you're going into's place within the movement. So if we're talking about students or young people entering the workforce or entering, let's say, nonprofit organizations that are in the progressive movement, you know, not every organization can do all the things. Organizations are one piece of a larger movement as well, right? And then that movement is a larger piece of a big political conversation. And so being really realistic about the the entry points and the strategies there, right? When we work with young people on building a campaign, a lot of what our conversations are in our training really is about being, is having a concrete goals and asks. So a goal of dismantling white supremacy is great. That is what we want to do, right? But what is something concrete that impacts your life? Well, I go to school with faculty that say problematic language in a certain class. Okay, so let's narrow it down. And how can we narrow it down not to diminish the goal and the idealism that you have, but to make concrete change. So then, you know, next year or the year after, if we were to win, there would be something very structural and concrete and tangible that future generation students, whomever, wherever the change you're trying to make, will feel the difference, right? And I think that's the same if you're going into the workforce as well as being very concrete about X expectations and being realistic. The unfortunate part of all of these, whether it's young people working to be an activist to create change, building campaigns, or even entering the workforce in the nonprofit sector or social impact world, is unfortunately BIPOC folks, queer folks, people who identify as women have more to navigate in those structures. And I want to be very you know, honest in that as well, right? And so I think having, having mentors and having folks like you and I and others in our field to be able to speak to those experiences helps set young people up for success rather than the shock of the negative experience they may have. And also, if they don't have those experiences, that's even better. But to know that depending on the organization you go into, depending on the movement you're involved in, you know, there may be some experiences that you have that many of us share. So sometimes it's not necessarily to withhold information from young people so they don't get scared off, but more for young folks to have solidarity with other folks like them. Yeah, I love that. I think that that's right. One of the things that I've been struck by doing this work the last few years is particularly BIPOC people, particularly people who identify as women, the way that people support one another in this work, there is like an immediate, like even through Zoom, when I meet people for the first time, like there's an immediate connection, like it's just so uncanny in this space. And I think that's the positive edge of that sword, right, is that there is a lot to navigate here. But the true desire to support one another here is also really powerful. And it's been one of the most rewarding parts of this work has been the community that you develop as you try and navigate these really, really messy waters. And you've seen a lot of you've seen a lot of these kinds of areas of social change. I think one of the things that I hear a lot from people is just like, I don't know what social impact means or what area of social impact I want to be in. And to your point, there's a lot of different tools in that toolbox. So one of your first kind of big jobs out of school was doing direct service work at a rape crisis center with a focus on working with kids. And you mentioned that when you were, you know, starting out, you were really trying to focus based on your major, which is, again, something I hear a lot because they, people assume that's the only thing that they're qualified to do. So you went into more direct service work because it's what you felt qualified to do. And although you found that work rewarding, it sounds like you also learned that traditional direct service work wasn't the right fit for you. So I'd love to hear sort of what that experience was like, particularly why you felt in the realm of social change, you were not suited to direct service work or maybe direct service work wasn't suited to you. Curious what you would reflect on in that experience. 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely, the the work I did, I worked at the local rape crisis center in my community, and I loved the work. I really did. And I will say as someone who, again, I'm originally from Las Vegas. My parents worked in the casinos and the service industry. I knew very little of nonprofit work, the education system. You know, I knew people had jobs and they got paid at jobs, right? Like I really did not understand how all of these systems work together, let alone the murky waters of what the nonprofit sector really is because I don't think that they actually tell you or share with you how nonprofit organizations, direct service organizations, actually what their impacts are and what a career in that world looks like. And so I really only saw local shelters, you know, direct service organizations that provided direct care, domestic violence organizations, rape crisis centers, food banks. Those were the only nonprofits I knew existed. And so, you know, I really did love the work I did with the Rape Crisis Center. My background on analysis regarding gender and power was helpful in that work. But I also was really young. I was just out of college. And on many of us know that some of the social impact work that we work in, often there's a tie to our own personal life. And what I realized was that I wasn't at the place that I had unpacked my own trauma, my own experiences to properly provide the direct services and care I needed to with a population that needed it. And unfortunately, because local organizations that do direct service are so underfunded that, you know, the training and support for their staff isn't up to par as what I think that all direct service organizations should have. And so, you know, I was doing good work. I was proud of my work, but I was being incredibly emotionally impacted by my work. And I was not yet at the place to fully be able to hold other people's experience in a way, in the way that I needed to, that didn't detrimentally kind of impact me and you know, being really honest here. And so I recognize that early on at some point that maybe this direct service work isn't for me, not because it's not for me right um, generally, but for me right now. And I didn't have the mentors or those other kind of structures or, or people to help me navigate what it was I was going through working directly with young people who experience trauma and assault and abuse every single day, which is not an easy route. Right. And, you know, I moved on to be working, doing more program management at the university level, doing, you know, leadership programs and educational outreach. But what I realized, you know, was that I kind of ushered myself into direct service work because I didn't know that there was any other options, quite honestly. And, you know, I will say at this point in my life, I could probably do direct service work much better. I just wasn't given the right tools to be able to do it in a way that I think honored the lives and experiences of those that I was serving. I wasn't there yet, quite honestly. And 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 it's a journey that I think folks need to take, but also, unfortunately, there's not a lot of support to really help navigate what does the nonprofit sector mean? Like, what types of organizations are there? I didn't know there was a difference between programmatic work, direct service work. I just thought everyone had to do direct service work and work with those populations who are experiencing, you know, trauma or abuse or assault. You know, I, I really just didn't know. And I didn't have the people, mentors or tools to be able to navigate that. I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's it speaks to something that is so fundamentally important in the space, which is so many of us come to this work because of something deeply personal that brings us there. And it is okay to decide that I need to take care of myself and I can care deeply about an issue and also step away from it because you're not ready or you don't feel equipped or supported to like take on that work, whatever that might look like. You can believe in something and also decide I need to take a beat for myself here and maybe not be in this space. Particularly to your point, there is not 
nearly sufficient resources, particularly for people who are on the front lines of this kind of work to sustain themselves, take care of themselves mentally, physically, emotionally. And so I I totally hear what you're saying. I, again, like I said, appreciate you sharing with us. And I think that it's something really important that we don't talk enough about. Um, and I will never stop raging about the lack of resources for nonprofit staff in general. I, it's just something that I can't ever get over. So that makes a lot of sense. You touched on sort of where you went afterwards. You started doing more programmatic work. You, as far as I understand it, actually got to work with students that were running a women's leadership program that you yourself got to work on while you were in school. So it kind of came full circle where you were on the higher ed side. You were the the grown up in the room, so to speak. Although I work with a lot of students who I swear are older than I am, certainly wiser than I am. Yeah. <laughs> so is that sort of, I'd love to hear now you still are working obviously with youth a lot. Is this sort of where that seed was planted? Do you think you've always felt drawn to kind of working with young people? Uh, what was that stage of the journey like for you? Yeah, definitely. I went on to work at the Women's Research Institute of Nevada, which was a nonprofit that was housed at the university that I went to. And the program was called New Leadership, which was National Education for Women's Leadership. As a senior in college, I was a part of this program. And it was incredibly kind of life-changing for me to really have women's leadership kind of demystified for me. I was able to meet women elected officials, women corporate leaders, women who were running nonprofit organizations. And so I built a community of other students like myself that cared about the same issues. And so when I was able to come back and be the program manager, again, yes, being the grown up in the room, which was probably questionable at the time, but um, I did it. And it was what I found was that while this program as a participant was so life changing and I had grown so much, even with just a sort five days in this program, on the other end, what I saw was the amount of work that was put in and that, you know, education and growth and development isn't kind of willy-nilly. It isn't just like, if we just tell you all the things and you learn it, right? It is very structured. There's a way to really kind of build someone's not only knowledge, but also their confidence in a way. And that's the pedagogy of education, right? And found that really fascinating. And I love kind of also the details going into it, all the small pieces that, you know, takes to run a program, right? And also building relationships with other leaders in the community. That was really powerful for for me. And I really appreciated kind of going to the other side and really building out these programs and also being able to influence, right? And recognizing, looking at what it means to have diverse panel of women leaders, right? Recognizing that maybe the years prior, these were the people who spoke. But when I looked at it, it was five white women. And what does that say as a, to a participant, right? Without saying anything to that participant, that young person in the room. And so really being able to build out that influence and thinking through those different types of things. And then seeing the impact, right? And, and hearing back from students afterwards. And so definitely, it, you know, I've worked with young people in some capacity most of my life, whether I was substitute teacher when I was in college, I was tutor, I worked again with kids when I worked direct service. And then this program with college students really kind of hit the sweet spot for me of being able to kind of work with young people and work with students who are right at that moment. I don't know how to describe it. This moment where they they get what we used to call, but now education things are changing. But it was like the feminist click, that click, that moment of progressive politics, that moment of 
seeing your identity and race consciousness, gender consciousness, right? And then helping really usher people into a place in which they can really leverage that and pursue their passions. That's like a sweet spot for me. And I feel very honored to be able to continue to work with young people in that moment of their lives and careers. And that program and working not only as a student, but then as a program manager really helps you know move me in that direction. Yeah, I think that's you kind of framed it in a way that I hadn't really thought about recently, but is so true, which is I think people sometimes assume education is, oh, it's an adult imposing their view of how to approach life on a young person. And then that person absorbs it and moves on. And truly, if you're doing it the way that you should be doing it, you're creating an environment, a program, a structure, a community where they get to explore their own identity and their own power. And you're just there to help kind of facilitate and make things happen and give advice as needed. But it's really to create a space for them to come into their own versus them become a mini version of you. And that's something I try and communicate to people a lot is I don't have all the answers. I have not worked every social impact job that there is out there that you can work, but I can create a space in which you can reflect and ask questions and think about the things that you care about and point you towards resources. That's what I can do. And I think what we've both seen is that makes yeah a really, really big transformational impact, not just on them, but the ripple effect of what that can do for them and the people around them is really one of my favorite parts of working with young people. So yeah, I think that resonates deeply. So then you actually ended up moving to DC to get a master's in public policy and gender studies, which I think is a really cool kind of intersection. So I'm curious, why was the master's that was calling your name? What was your goal going into that program? And do you feel like you kind of got what you wanted out of that experience? I got my master's six years after I finished my undergrad. So I worked in the field. I worked, you know, at that organization I was just talking about for a number of years. I was doing community, you know, activism work and volunteer work. And I decided to go back to get my master's and focus on policy because with my job, part of my job at that moment was also advocating for state funds to help fund this program that I was running. Right. So I would go to the Capitol every every other year and testify about the impact of the program that I was running and the impacts of the students that we worked with in order for the state to continue to fund this institute that I worked at. So I had kind of lobbying, state lobbying was already kind of built into my position already. And with that, I would bring students to the Capitol to to share their stories and experiences, the work that we were doing. And I joined other kind of grassroots lobby days. One of the projects I was very involved in starting and creating was the Equality Days, which was the first ever LGBT state lobby day in the state of Nevada. And this is, again, I'm aging myself, but this is a bit ago when the conversation around LGBT equality was around marriage equality. No, it was around domestic partnerships and civil unions. That's where I'm going to age myself. (laughs) And of course, a lot of non-discrimination measures that we're still battling today. But I was you know, as a young person, I was still in my early 20s while I was working a professional job. I was still doing community activism and help, you know, really move this Equality Days, bring queer folks for the first time ever to the state capitol in an organized fashion to advocate for LGBT protections against discrimination in the state. And, you know, we were able to move some bills in the couple of times that I had gone up to, to the Capitol. And that was really striking for me. And that was really profound for me to see that, you know, there were some legislators and I'm, you know, I'm from the state of Nevada. There's There are cities, it's very rural. And so there were some legislators, mostly like ranchers, you know, who had never met a queer person. And we had brought a hundred on the legislative floor 
to, to advocate for their rights. And I found that incredibly powerful. And I saw that policy change can come from the people. And so that was why I decided to get my master's and focusing on policy as well as gender studies, because that's really my academic home. And I feel most safe when I'm in kind of a gender studies space in the academic world. And so I found this program at George Washington University in, in DC and applied for it. I will also, in my effort to be transparent, I had I applied to grad school because I only had one year left of my GRE scores and I did not want to retake the GREs. So I was like, this is the last, this is my last time. I gotta, I gotta use these scores while I have them. My other point of advice to young people is always if you are thinking of maybe going to grad school, take your GREs right away. I was never a great test taker. So I knew that, you know, being an undergrad, that was probably the height of my test taking abilities. And every year that goes on, test taking becomes harder and harder. So I had taken the GREs right after undergrad and I did not apply to any grad schools the entire time. I was like, I'm going to figure out what I want to do. I'll maybe, I don't know. And then I had one more year left where those scores were going to qualify. So I, I applied to grad school and for the draw, I was able to get in and, and move myself to DC to, to pursue that. I mean, I wouldn't call it the luck of the draw. Obviously, you are very, very smart and know this space well and have incredible on the ground experience, right? Like I think being able to talk about queer rights with ranch hands in Nevada who have never met queer people before, to their knowledge, uh, have met queer people before. I think that as someone who struggles with discomfort, like I can, I know this about myself. I always admire people who are able to do that and be in a way that feel, it feels like very vulnerable to meet people to do that and really advocate for yourself in that way. So I respect respect it tremendously. So now you work at Advocates for Youth, been there for 10 years, which is amazing. And what's interesting is you don't now purely work in policy or work purely in community organizing. It sounds like you've sort of found an interesting intersection of that. So I would love to hear sort of in your own words, you've kind of shared a lot of different experiences that you've had at all levels of activism and policy work. Why does this particular model speak to you? Yeah, so I've been at Advocates for Youth for 10 years, which every single time I say it, I kind of choke on my own. I'm like, wow, has it really been 10 years? And, and I love it. And you're right. I definitely do our work at, at the intersection of you know some of these different strategies, whether it's organizing, whether it's policy advocacy, et cetera. What I love about the work that Advocates for Youth does is because it really balances out and puts weight on both the grass tops and the grassroots. And so often, and we are based in Washington, D.C. It's a national organization. So often I see so many organizations speak on behalf half of communities, right? But not necessarily work hand in hand with those communities or they work with their constituents to have quote, boots on the ground, right? That they can take action quickly. They can show up to a rally, but they're not really building long lasting, deep partnerships or relationships. And so at Advocates for Youth, we do our advocacy work in a number of different ways. We also, the core part of our organization is working in a youth adult partnership framework, which means that we are working in partnership with the young people that we serve and that we work alongside. And that is our, you know, our youth activists, our youth activist network. And so it's, again, it's not necessarily creating a power imbalance in which the youth activists are learning everything from us. We're giving them the tools and building a, creating the space for them to build campaigns and make change in their own right. And our advocacy work, you know, really prioritizes issues, reproductive and sexual health and rights issues that center young people, but also are coming from young people's experiences themselves, right? And making sure their voices are being heard. Any advocacy or meetings or any of my expertise on issues that impact young people, 
not only come from the data, but also come from young people's real lives, what they are sharing, what sex education classrooms are like, what accessing contraceptive care is like going to a clinic, what these terrible policies that impact and create unsafe places for LGBTQ youth. It's not just a talking point, it's people's real lives. And we work in partnership with them. So I am able to, you know, work with people in positions of power to, you know, to advocate for for the issues or the policies legislation that we as an organization are prioritizing, but we're also able to bring young people into those meetings and bring their voices into those meetings and and have all of our kind of work really shaped by young people's lived experiences and, and having them kind of lead the charge and lead the way with us being kind of alongside them in partnership. Something I get asked a lot is my thoughts on Gen Z and what I think they will do for making the world a different, hopefully better place. So I'm happy to share my thoughts on on my experience of working particularly with Gen Z, but I'd love to hear your your thoughts on, on this incoming generation, people who are becoming a voting age, who are entering the workforce, the most diverse, most educated generation we've ever seen in this country. What is your hot take on Gen Z and particularly in the context of the work that you do in policy and civic engagement? I love this question. My hot take on Gen Z. I love Gen Z. The Gen Z is out there. They are actively using the tools at their disposal and that resonate with them to, you know, dismantle white supremacy, to have the hard conversations about racism, to dismantle the gender binary. And it's so natural and honest and their everyday lives, right? And so what I love is that, you know, sometimes I'm sitting in these meetings with either folks in the policy space or 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 funders for even, right? Talking about how to make something intersectional, like are these issues really connected? Is it intersectional? I don't know. Having these big conversations, but if you talk to any young person, you talk to anyone in Gen Z, it's obvious that these issues are interrelated because it's how they live their lives, right? And there are times that I, I part of the reason why I love the work I do is also because young people are always challenging us and young people have always challenged, right? Young people have always been on the front lines. When we were that age, we were doing the exact same thing. And so, you know, Gen Z, or whatever next generation, or, you know, when it was millennials, right? They're always pushing forward and pushing culture and society forward. And that's what we need. And so Gen Z is doing it in Gen Z's way. Um, and oftentimes I have to get that translated to me, but that's okay. The the digital tools, the ways of communication, you know, uh, I, I love it. I mean, if you look at the governor of Virginia uh, introduced some very harmful anti-trans guidelines for all the school districts in the state of Virginia recently, uh, it was flagrantly transphobic and harmful for trans young people. And you know what happened a week later? Students all across the state of Virginia walked out of class. Coordinated effort by Gen Z, not by any organization like ours, not any kind of institutional group organizing young people via TikTok, via Signal, via Discord, the various communication channels coordinated themselves to walk out and make a statement. And that's what Gen Z is doing. And that's, that's what youth generation, youth of all generations have always done, have pushed us and pushed culture and society in a way that is incredibly necessary. So I'm a big fan of Gen Z, even though sometimes I don't quite understand what Gen Z is saying or, but I'm like, as long as it's translated, I'm here for it. <laughs> 
I really like need subtitles every now and then of like, is that a good thing? Are we happy about that? How do we feel about like what's going on? Are you making fun of me or are you supporting me? I don't know. Probably both. I honestly couldn't have summed it up better. I think that I, particularly in the work that I do, seeing the way that they are fighting corporate culture and fighting how we show up in the workplace, fighting how we define being committed to our jobs, all of those things. I'm seeing it in my interns. They're not even fully out in the workforce yet. And I'm excited about how uncomfortable they're making everybody around them. It's great. It's very exciting to watch. And I think you and I are so lucky to be able to work directly with folks like this who are keeping us on our toes. I think one of the things that I have observed for myself is like, wow, there's a lot of traditional things that I had really absorbed and sort of things that I was like, oh, this is just how we've always done it. And I've caught myself and been like, wait, why why is that the case? Why am I thinking about it this way? And they're constantly keeping me on my toes. And I think that's something that I hope I get to do for the rest of my career. So this is this is a Gen Z fan account now. Yeah, just we're a couple of millennials who are big Gen Z fans. And that's the theme of this episode. So I love it. Well, Diana, thank you so much for, for making the time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It has put my mind at rest, at least for the next like 20 minutes until I have, you know, existential dread again. But yeah, incredibly grateful. And and excited to see your work continue to do amazing things, not just for the community, but for the next leaders of this country and these communities. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really love this conversation. I love that we're both big fans of Gen Z. Um, uh, you know, especially, I don't think I could have had a better conversation the eve of election day. And, you know, there are times I feel very hopeless. But then when you share a conversation and I feel like somehow I am walking away feeling very hopeful about what's going to happen tomorrow and the, the next generation of leaders that I know that both you and I have the honor of bearing witness to and supporting and seeing them move throughout the, this world culture and at the front lines of the social movements we care about. So I'm, I'm walking away feeling, feeling hopeful. And I hope you are too. The Careers They Didn't Tell You About podcast is brought to you by Second Day, an organization fighting to make social impact careers more accessible to all by dismantling inequitable talent pipelines into mission-driven industries. To learn more, go to secondday.org. I'd like to thank my producer, Mai Vo, for her incredible work in making this episode possible. Music used in this podcast is titled Blessed Time by Ketza. It can be found on the free music archive under the Creative Commons license. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe. It makes a really, really big difference to our community. 